I just wanted to let you guys know that I'm I'm feeling very anxious about this Tsitsipas Isner match, mm. which I started watching only at the end of my day. And uh, it's that thing where you're just you're in the middle of a match and you care about the outcome. And so I sort of want to watch it so that I can, you know, experience the glory or the heartbreak, whatever comes. But I also have this urge to just never watch tennis again so that I, I don't end up caring at all. You know, like I could just, <laughs> I could just opt out of the whole thing right now. Has <laughs> that match in particular made you feel like stopping tennis altogether forever? <laughs> No, actually, it's a pretty good match. Isner's playing really, really well. Like, you know, sometimes, obviously, he's got the serve, and sometimes, you know, sometimes he's got the touch along with the serve. And when that happens, it's the danger zone. So Steph yeah. dropped the first set, and Steph just had love 40 on Isner's serve and couldn't convert and it's like oh boy huh. this is uh this is looking a little scary but I mean you know I think this might be the hardest obstacle between Tsitsipas in the final especially with Rude Rude out but yeah Rude was gonna be a challenge does that mean Medvedev's on this side now right so he's now mm-hmm. a contender <laughs> somehow yeah yeah, Medvedev is a contender for the final. Uh, <laughs> Zverev's in that half as well, and I think people are overlooking him, but he is he is good on clay. Yeah, yeah. he is. I did see a photo of Steph preparing for that is the match by getting someone to serve like halfway between the service line and the baseline, like really a lot closer <laughs> to the net and just pound <laughs> serves at him. <laughs> That's really funny. I suppose that's easier than hiring a seven foot tall person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that can play as well as he's not. <laughs> Where are you going to find one of those? Yeah. Riley Opelka's free. Oh, he lost. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he lost. To Medvedev. Yeah, to Medvedev. I thought, I thought that uh, our friendly ogre was having his moment. He may actually be having his moment anyway. That was good. That was a good run. Third round. We learned about his food nerdiness and his museum watching and his possible friendship, maybe more, with um, Venus Williams. It's been, yeah. it's been fun. It's been a fun ride with Riley. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, do you feel bad calling him an ogre? We call him the tie-dye ogre. That's The tie-dye ogre, yes, but that's because he resembles an ogre in stature, not because he has like an ogre's disposition or personality. Yeah. Right, yeah, that's because he resembles an ogre, not because of his disposition. Though he does tend to get pretty angry at times during matches. Yeah. Alex and I saw him um, in the fifth set. It was like a first maybe a first or second round match against Thomas Fabiano on an outside <laughs> court at the Australian Open. And Fabiano is a short guy. He's like 5'9 or something, so... Um, it was like a battle of David and Goliath and um, mm. he lost in in the fifth set and he was extremely angry. That was mm. my first experience of him and he walked right past us as well because on the outside yeah. courts you got to exit like that. Yeah, I saw I saw only match point today because they just, you know, they cut to it and 
and showed it. And he just looked, he looked really sheepish, you know, like, oh, I just couldn't get it done. Oh, okay. I think he's growing as a person. That's great. Yeah. That's wonderful. I think he might be too, actually. Um, developing and not being, not having that sort of like petulant disposition where everything's not going his way. I think he's controlling it a bit more and pushing through it a bit more. And I think he's, he's, he's seeing the benefit from that. I'm coming around on, on, on Riley. I was a bit off him at the start when I first started watching him, but I'm coming mm. around. Me too. The Federer time violation was unbelievable. I didn't see it. Tell, tell us about it. Yeah, so so he was playing Marin Cilic yesterday, and they're, they're old buddies. And as you and I, um, the two of you and I know from watching Marin Cilic live together at the Australian Open, very few people take more time on their serve. I mean, the dude bounces the ball 15 times like before every serve emitted. And somehow he manages to skirt along without getting too many time violations. So anyway, Federer got a time violation because he wasn't ready to receive. And there was something like 17 seconds left on the serve clock. So I guess Chilich was in was at the line and Federer was at his towel and trying to make his way back to receive. And so the umpire calls the violation. And it, I think it's just crazy because Federer is on the opposite end of the spectrum from Chilich. He plays at a rapid pace. He doesn't waste time when he's serving. The whole reason that that rule exists is so that the game is moving faster, generally. So that players don't like just drag it out when they're not in a groove, take their time thinking about everything. You have to have some way to move the game along. And I think there's something ironic when like an umpire calls something like that on a person who's like the furthest thing from a problem. You know, it's like, you know, what was he trying to do there? He wasn't trying to control the match. It's not like something was getting out of hand, like Federer was just stalling Chilich. And that's why he he had an advantage. Like there was no problem with the pace of the match whatsoever. The umpire just decided to like interject. And um, anyway, Federer... Federer got pissed, and it kind of, it may have cost him the second set because he kind of lost his focus a bit. Didn't he have a really long discussion with the umpire? Yeah, it was about three minutes long. So he probably should have received another time violation. Like, what if you received time violations while you were talking to an umpire? <laughs> Just mid-sentence? Oh, and by the way, that's yeah. another one. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's right. So you can't even talk to them. Or like, yeah. if they come down from the chair to look at a mark... And you try to tell them that what they see is not correct. That's just yeah. wasting their time. So because yeah. they're they're never going to change their mind uh, because like they say the ball is in and you say the ball is out like that. You're just delaying the game at this point. That's true. There's so many blurry lines there and and, and, and picking what side you fall down on on those those li- like either side of that line is it's always. Yeah, you, I mean, I, I agree with that uh, discussion about the line thing, the is, it, is that the right mark? Is that in or out? That's yeah. just as much of a delay of game as anything else. I, I totally agree. And the, the service receiving one is a funny one because, you know, the rule is you go to play the service speed. Um, but if you, you know, like you said, there's 17 seconds left. That means that he's only taken, what, uh, seven seconds off the 24-second clock or whatever to go and get the towel that seems totally reasonable and people used to do that anyway when ball kids were around you know it's using the towel while you're receiving is is sort of allowed but sort of not because you're supposed to play at the service pace it's like a pretty blurry line there 
Yeah, basically Federer got penalized for using the towel. That's And mm. I, the commentators were talking about how much trouble Federer seems to have with the towel. Like, he seems to have an inordinate, like, since he's just come back on tour. <laughs> yeah. He talks about it a lot. I've seen it. I mentioned it a couple of times in his press conferences, though, like, people will ask him, um, Roger, yeah, you you haven't played many games back. How's it? How does it feel? You know, because he's had, like, a sort of stop-start um, restart to his to his um since since the pandemic and these injuries and stuff he played like played a little bit he played one one tournament before the the clay court season started and then he started again playing one tournament um before the french open so each time it's like you know he's getting used to the new rules and i've seen him mention the towel he's like yes yeah it's a bit hard like the, there's the towel i forget about the towel and I don't think he even has to get the towel at his house. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so many He's... images running through my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> Just like in yeah, in any situation. Yeah, yeah. Like he he, he steps out of the shower and there's <laughs> a teenager uh, ready to provide him with a towel. Yeah, yeah, he gets out of the pool, then someone just comes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just the, the very notion that he would have to retrieve his own towel is it's kind of beneath him. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it was fun. You know, it's good to see him play. It was good to see him, you know, argue, get get pissed off. Like, you know. He's see doing little, well, right? I haven't seen life. his matches, but yeah. he's doing well, huh? Yeah, his he look he's looked very good in both matches, and you know he had the hiccup against Chilich, but um, yeah, he looks super solid, I think. Mm. And he's got a he's got a he's got a match in the third round that he should absolutely win. He's playing um, Dominic Kupfer of Germany, who is a good player, yeah. lefty. I mean, I I don't want to diminish his play. Um, I think he's good on clay, but it's just no. the class of player that Federer should dismiss. And, yeah, I agree. And then uh, hopefully set up a match with Berrettini, which would be very interesting. And I think, you know... That would be good. Yeah, with Federer growing in confidence, uh, I don't think that's such a foregone conclusion for, for Matteo at this point. No, remember when they met on grass and then at the end, like Federer easily beat him and then... <laughs> At yeah. the end, when they were shaking hands, Bertini was like, so how much do I owe you for this lesson? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's yeah. really funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Bertini is a better player now. No question about it. But like, it's it, this is the thing about these these top players and you could you could say the same thing about Serena, who everybody has been figured. I mean, Serena had some bad losses on clay before the French open mm. and she is through to the fourth round. She beat Danielle Collins today pretty easily. You, you know, people just were like, ah, maybe it's past their time. It's, you know, they're going to get beaten. This isn't their surface. Um, but you know, Federer, the last time he played the French, he made the semifinals. Mm. Uh, he's very good on clay. So if he's healthy and gets into a rhythm, I mean, I think he'd have a, I think Djokovic, I don't, I don't know that I could pick him against Djokovic under any situation on clay right now, but, um, but the Berrettini match would be fascinating. I'd love to see that. I hope, I hope we get that one. Yeah. Yeah. And I do hope that he wins, Federer wins, so we get a Federer Djokovic. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think that Djokovic will eat the dirt if he beats Federer? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> just bends over and <laughs> takes a fistful. He does that on grass, right? He eats the grass. Yeah. Yeah. And most recently, he had that real big, wide grin when he won when he came through that ah. that match in Wimbledon last time and beat Federer. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will never forget that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he would need to kind of like. I don't know, compact the dirt, I think, to eat it, like, into a, like, <laughs> into a patty cake or, like, a, um, you know, like a biscuit or something, because if you try to just eat the dirt, <laughs> how it is... It how much dirt of, do you think he's going to eat? <laughs> I don't know, like, just a little bite of it, but I'm just thinking, uh, in order to bite, in order to get the bite in, I reckon get the hose, you know, the hose is right there on the side of the court. <laughs> Uh, get a bit of get a, a knife and fork, a mud cake going, or something and just yeah, no, you can eat it with your hands. But <laughs> I'm just concerned if it, if he wins the title and he goes to eat the dirt, he picks up the dirt and it just kind of crumbles and and gets messy and what kind of gets on his just kind of slips through his fingers. Mm. Like the, yeah, mm. yeah. I, I think he should just pick the, the the clay up with his hand and you know kind of grind it to like a finer particulate matter and just let it like flow into his mouth. <laughs> but <laughs> but only if he defeats Roger Federer in the quarterfinal. I, I think that should be his like Federer taunt. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what he would do on hard courts. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> like he orders delivery or something. You know, <laughs> just like, <laughs> you could lick the hard court. An Uber Eats guy comes up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. He licks the hard court. Lick the hard, eat the grass, and what did you say? Fill the dirt. Let it flow. I mean, eat, eat the dirt, but you know. Eat the dirt. Well, I'm definitely hoping for that one. I just feel a little bit oddly spent. I feel like I got everything I wanted out of the men's side up until the final. And somehow I felt a little anticlimactic and I feel kind of sad that it's over. Yeah. Well, once the men's final was over, then it was everything was really over, wasn't it? Um, was the women's doubles before the men's? Yeah, it was. Singles final? Yeah. Yeah. Kujikova got her double-double. It was the curtain raiser. I kind of wanted that to happen as much as I love um, Bethany Maddox-Sands and Iga Swiatek. Mm. But, you know, like, Siniakova and Kujikova are, you know, they really care about the doubles. Or so does Maddox-Sands. She's a double specialist. But but as a team, they're, they're a really great team, really setting their sights on, on Grand Slam doubles titles. And, yeah, and it was all the more special because it was the double, singles double-double for Kujikova. Right, which n- never happens. Since Mary Pierce in 2000, it hasn't happened at Roland Garros. Wow. To 21 years. Has anybody else done it at any of the other slams? Has Serena done it? Um, I, I wondered about that. I Maybe Davey Gravy can help us out, but I would, I would be surprised if okay. either Venus or Serena hasn't done it at some stage in their career because early on they played doubles together and they were top singles players winning Grand Slams, so... Venus Williams accomplished the double-double twice at Wimbledon, winning the singles and doubles titles in 2000 and 2008, both times with Serena Williams. Serena herself has achieved the feat a whopping eight times in the last 30 years, 
more than any other player, and all playing alongside her sister, including at the 1999 US Open after winning her first Grand Slam singles title three times at the Australian Open, and four times at Wimbledon. McEnroe's done, like, it used to be more of an old school thing to do, because, like, you're the, even on the men's side, you'd play five set doubles and singles. Yeah. As a, like, regularly, like, the singles players were doubles players too. Yeah, now, especially for men, it's a lot more uncommon that uh, a top male singles player would compete in the doubles, right? And if they did and they made a run on singles, they'd probably drop out. It's just too much, yeah, too much cost. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Davey Gravy, I have a question for you. In the French Open semifinals, we've got Pavlyuchenkova, Sedancic, Sakari, and Krajikova. Two of them are unseeded. The other two aren't top 10 players, and all four have never been to a Grand Slam semifinal before. What are the chances mathematically of such an occurrence happening? The odds of these for women reaching the semifinals of the French Open entering the event. Computing. The answer is one. Since they all did, in fact, reach the semifinals of the French Open. It's interesting how the men's side, it was almost predictable. Like it was basically the seeds that you would have expected based on some combination of form and just, you know, the top players who seem to be getting deep these days. And on the women's side, it was just bodies falling all over the place, like seeds dropping out and getting beat and upsets. And all of a sudden, uh, this amazing opportunity for some less heralded players. Yeah, it's pretty crazy the way it worked out. Yeah, there were the injuries and the withdrawals as well. But um, gosh, who would have thought Kachikuru would win that? My God, gee. Doubles, a double specialist. But now everyone's like, I was listening to the tennis podcast people and they're like saying, well, why not? Like she's got, like, she's got the game. She's got a good game. We knew she had a, a good game. It's kind of strange that she hadn't broken through in singles earlier. But, you know, if you're number one in the world in doubles, like you are a pretty good tennis player. And she really had the desire to, to see how far she could go in, in singles. And seeking out Jana Novotna when she was 18 for some help shows that like she was willing to be courageous and give it a good try i wonder if maybe it's just her personality to some degree her personality she's kind of on the diminutive side she doesn't really jump off the screen or off the court to people who are able to watch live um and the, you know even the way her doubles partner siniakova does like siniakova's got a big personality and made a quarterfinal run at roland garros a, a couple years ago so, you know, even though Siniakova's not a top-ranked player, she's not a seed, she's a player with a little bit of, of success at the slams and kind of just seemed like the more prominent figure in that in that doubles team. So, yeah, Krajikova suddenly stepping forward and and becoming this, uh, this star player. It's not unlike Sophia Kennan, where I don't know if I totally trust it like is she somebody who's really going to be at the top of the game and will be competing for these types of trophies or did she just get the you know the the right draw the right you know she get hot at the right time i don't yeah. know what do you think you think you think you're going to see more from her on the single side well i hope so 
Well, because like the French Open does seem to throw up more than any other slam, throws up these unlikely champions. And, you know, Ostapenko is uh, the, the recent example of someone who's won a Grand Slam singles title but then didn't really do anything else. Yeah. Because maybe, I mean, maybe it's because, you know, the, the clay rewards not just pure athleticism but tactics, like strategy. Like people talk about it like, you know, playing a game of chess on clay because you have to work so hard to think a few moves ahead. How are you going to pull a player out and then bring them into net and, you know, do different things to win a point? You can't just blast a, a serve or a heavy ground stroke and think that that will be enough. You know, there's that aspect, the surface aspect. Can she repeat it on other surfaces? Yeah. But I don't, I, I don't know. Like, I think she seems really has have a great attitude and, and some players do take a while to bloom. So I don't know, but I just want her to because I think she's a really nice person and fun person, um, a people's hero <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I I just don't have I don't have particularly strong feelings for her positive or negative, which you know, I, I'm always looking for a little bit more, you know, drama, a little bit bigger personality. That's kind of my my bias. But I agree, like I don't really know. Like I think I think most of the time I defer to supposed experts on questions of like you know, who who are the players who are supposed to be at the top of the game? You know, who are the people that we've been expecting? And, you know, right, she's she's 25 years old. She's not she's not old, but she really, you know, hadn't hadn't made a lot of uh, noise in in the singles game until very recently. Somebody was saying this was only her fifth main draw Grand Slam event. That's right. Her fifth her fifth slam that she'd entered in like she'd maybe hadn't entered some of them or, or, you know, fallen at the qualifying stage of others. Um, was focusing on doubles for some of that, that time only. Yeah. Um, but I think just didn't, wasn't good enough um, to get into mm. main draws in singles. Yep. Here she is. French Open champion. The match she won against Sakari, it was interesting also. Uh, both semifinals were pretty dramatic, went deep into the third set. And, uh, you know, I think I feel like, so- you know, Sakari is a player who is more noticeable. She's got this really chiseled physique and she's, you know, she's like very like she's got this kind of stern, aggressive manner on court. Uh, she's very expressive. And I feel like we've been hearing about her and watching her with interest for several years. And I thought like, well, if Krajikova wins, you know, I mean, Sakari, she's still young, you know, there, there's, there's time for her, even though this was a really big opportunity that, that she missed. She had match point against Krajikova in that mm. semifinal. And then I realized that they're the same age. I mean, they're both 25. Yeah. It's a few months difference. Sakari, I don't know. She, she does strike you as more like she's more of a singles player. She's yeah. the, you know, she's got that intensity. You feel like she's got what it takes. Well, well, I'm sort of reconsidering that there may be a different way to have what it takes to be successful mm. because um, Krajikova like doesn't have that same intensity and she still won it with a, 
yeah i mean i suppose she i suppose she does have like in an intensity in her own way but i thought sakura was gonna win that match and i thought probably yuchenkova was gonna win the final as well i didn't think Kujikri could do it she she just has the vibe of an underdog and yeah and i i do kind of, i mean sakura could have won that semi-final and Pavlyuchenkova, I think, was injured a little bit. Yeah, you know? I mean yeah. that always that doesn't always make the difference. And she did win the second set, kind of going away. Yeah, it was also interesting, like hearing about Kujikova, like uh, apparently before she went out for her match against Sloane Stevens, whom she beat six love six two, um, or maybe it was six two six love. She crushed Sloane Stevens when everybody was like getting excited about Sloane Stevens again, thinking, oh, this could be a big run for her. Like things are opening up, you know, she's got Krajikova. (laughs) And, um, and, uh, but apparently before going out for that match, Krajikova was so nervous. She basically, you know, she was like going to throw up and needed to get talked into going out there. was having a little bit of a panic attack. Uh, That's sort of the, it's all hearsay. Obviously I wasn't there, but. Yeah, in the end, she's the one who held her nerve. And, and it seems like that was, you know, that was definitely one of the themes, especially on the women's side, you know, um, these women facing huge opportunities. I feel like Sakari's career to date has had moments like this where she just, she's got the opportunity and she just can't quite keep it together in the big moments. And she seemed like she was doing that a little bit better now. But some of it was also technical. Like I, I, I discovered that, um, she was just her first serve, uh, percentage, her, like the win, the percentage of points she's winning on her first serve is like up dramatically from several years ago. It's like a very like clear indication that she worked on a part of her game and made it better. And that's why she's having more better results now. Um, as opposed to it just being like a mental thing, some real heartbreak for, uh, for Greek tennis, although also their best results ever in singles on both uh, women's and men's side. So I don't know. I guess it's all a matter of perspective, what you take away from it. Uh, did you did you get to watch the men's final? I did watch most of it. Um, I was in the fourth set when I cr- finally crashed. I haven't um, been watching um, a service where I can like watch, where I can watch on delay. So I've been trying to watch in real time. But that ends up being yeah. matches are like at 4 a.m. in the morning. So so I've been missing bits. But I actually, as I nodded off to sleep, I was thinking Djokovic is going to come back and win. Come, he's going to do it. I thought he would do it from two sets yeah. to love down. You know, when he was five, five love down against Nadal um, and he didn't panic. And Nadal could have closed that out for six love. And I think he needed it. Like, it's, it's crazy to think this. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think he needed to do that to have a chance of winning the match. Because and when he didn't, and then there were just a few points that went Djokovic's way, and it ended up being six three in the first. Like that was just enough for Djokovic to be like, all right, um, I found my range. Yeah, he got his teeth into the match, and yeah, yeah I, I had a similar feeling with the Tsitsipas match, where in the early in the third set, Djokovic got a break when it kind of seemed like. Ooh, Djokovic is on the ropes. Like he looks like he's really feeling the effects from the Rafa match. Like Steph has got two sets. Like surely, but you know, like this is who we're talking about. Novak Djokovic just—he could look dead, and you really you can't trust it. 
And I, and I do think that part of it is on the other side of the net. I think part of it was that Tsitsipas couldn't stay aggressive enough while keeping his composure, keeping the amount of control he needed. He started committing a lot more errors. Um, I, it was just I feel, it's something about that match. Like I went into it thinking it, Djokovic did something that was so incredible. That match against Rafa in the semifinals, obviously people are saying it's, you know, they're they're listing it amongst the greatest matches ever. Obviously, it's a little bit soon to know how memorable it will remain over time. But I think for historical context and like with all the COVID drama, the subtle COVID drama that took place during the match and and just like Rafa's feeling of invincibility, his 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 dominance is so intense and when when he went out to to that five love lead against Novak I was panicking I thought oh like really like even Novak like is about to get crushed is I think the same thing had happened in their match uh in 2020 at the French Open I think Rafa won the first set six love was the only player to ever bagel Djokovic in a final and then Novak just started kind of climbing his way back in and they had that insane third set that was just a total roller coaster. It was like the sport at its pinnacle. I, I think you know people were lamenting the fact that it wasn't the final, but you know you can't you can't control for that. Also, in some ways, like it's sort of cool that it wasn't the final. Maybe the the pressure was off, like slightly off in a way. Or um, I was thinking that it's also kind of great that it was Friday night in Europe and this incredible legendary match was happening in a way that it was it would get more attention for the sport. I feel like it really did good for the sport for that yeah. to happen yeah and the semi-final um, are, the semi-finals can be like finals can't they because it's like half of the draw sometimes you do have the two best players in yeah one one half or the other um so and it's also like nestled in there like in the tournament it's like there's other matches still happening or happening around you like um you know mm. the, the final can be a bit of a letdown sure in a way you know some it can they can be one-sided but i think semi-finals yeah semi-finals sometimes you do get the best matches and um but i don't think that's the case this tournament though was it i how did the fifth set and the last bit of the final play out um there was a bit of drama late because it was i mean it was once again novak got the early break i know that djokovic won six four and was serving for it at 5-4. But um, Tsitsipas had to serve to stay in the match at 3-5 and had a couple, maybe three match points against on his serve and managed to save them. And um, so the, the, the Djokovic's last service game, I think maybe it got to 15-all and then Novak pulled away. Um, there was just a little bit of drama late, you know. It, I mean, that's the thing. The, the margins are even, you know, even though Djokovic, kind, you know, won the third and fourth set fairly easily, it still felt like it could turn if just if Steph finds that level for a minute. But yeah, I, I just, you know, Steph's one of my favorite players, if not my favorite player on the men's tour. And it was just like, but I couldn't, I couldn't like wholeheartedly root for him in that match because I just felt like Djokovic earned it. Like it, it would be unjust somehow if if he didn't win that match. Yeah. Um, but so that didn't make me feel like warm and fuzzy inside at the end. I was just like, ah, like, well, I guess that's that's sort of like what needed to happen. But man, like if only one of these young players could beat Novak or Rafa or or even Roger in a final, 
you know, they just, they can't do it. And the team broke through because Djokovic defaulted and the other, and Nadal wasn't there. Yeah, I don't know. I, ho- I hope we get to see that. I hope those guys don't just dominate until they quit, you know? Um, I just think it'll be more interesting if, if Tsitsipas and Medvedev find ways to, to win those big matches in the next year or two. Yeah, I agree. I'm also very impressed with Novak. I think the GOAT discussion is like a very fraught one, but um, <laughs> I think what we've seen in this tournament, there's a lot to indicate that he may well go down as the GOAT. He's beaten Nadal. Nadal was close to his best this tournament, you know, you might have to say. Yeah. Um, maybe not at his very, very best. He's beaten Nadal at Roland Garros in a semifinal. Um, he's won the French Open for the second time. So now he's the only of the big three to win every Grand Slam at least twice. Because yep. Federer never did it at the French and Nadal hasn't done it at um, the Australian. Yep. Um, he's on 19. He's only one away. Um, he's got a chance to win the Golden Slam now. He could very well win <laughs> the US Open at the Olympics. And I wouldn't be surprised if he did, if he did that so well is he playing um his mental game his composure on court i think is you know you know people talk about his outbursts and and things like everyone but i think you know he gets more attention around that stuff everyone has outbursts on court you know even roger but maybe we turn more of a blind eye to those he hit the line umpire in the throat at the us open but it was an accident like just it was a bit careless yeah and I liked how he played that final against Sitsipas. Like he, he was calm. He was even advocating for both the players in the beginning uh, of the match. In the first set, he was saying like, we're not getting enough time between points. Mm. Um, and, and it was actually Sitsipas who got the time violation warning. You know, it wasn't even right. himself. Well, that was like a nice move. Like he cared. He's like thinking about the match in its totality, not just how it affects him. Um, right and then like even little details like he just maybe this is irrelevant but i thought that it was good that he he changes his shirt when he gets dirt on it hmm. <laughs> whereas Sitsipas didn't like Sitsipas was walking around with like a clay a clayed up shirt for like half a set the whole match the whole match I thought he had that that clay dirty shirt on throughout. I don't know. I maybe I I just wasn't really tracking it. But he definitely had it on for a while. He took a spill early. Kept it on for a long time. Yeah, he definitely kept it on. Whereas whereas um, Djokovic just immediately changes it. And I I mean maybe it works. Maybe you like to have like that badge of honor on you. Um, maybe it works. But like for Djokovic, it's like no, like everything's got to be clean, precise. Um, it's <laughs> almost like. You know, he sheds his skin and like begins anew. You know, like he, he loses a set, but he, he's just got that this kind of amazing power of of like coming out of the chrysalis again and just and doing and 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 changing and being better. Yeah, he's so good at the reset. It's true. He just you just can never count him out in any circumstance, but especially when the stakes are high. Like I'm remembering the final he played against Dominic team in Australia a couple years ago where team was up two sets to one 
and Djokovic looked like super fatigued and like it was just dragging his feet and he just found a way. He just, you know, that that match against Federer at Wimbledon in the final a couple of years ago where Roger yes. had match points on his own serve. His ability, like he won that match, even though he was outplayed for most of it by just picking his spots. He played the tie breaks more intelligently. He he played them perfectly. He he didn't have an unforced error in those three tie breaks that decided the match. It's just so interesting how quickly the narrative can flip, right? Like Rafa was right there on the doorstep looking at 21. He was going to break the tie. He was going to take the lead. Um, he was just going to reassert his dominance. This guy is completely unbeatable on clay. He's a total psychopath who will just murder anybody who gets in his way. And he just, his level was so... I think there's something about watching Rafa that's so upsetting to me because he just, he's, he's so aggressive and he, he just, he seems to not miss on clay. He gets to everything. He just, he's relentless in this way that I find like really inhuman. I feel like it just, Djokovic, you see the, the humanity a little bit more in his emotional swings, you know, like you see him get upset and frustrated and angry and, and his struggle. And, you know, he's had these terrible defeats and setbacks and yet there he is in the end and yeah the goat the goat debate i mean this is the greatest era of for men's tennis these three players together are the greatest three players of all time and then you know i i think there are reasons to advocate for any of them but it does kind of seem like in terms of raw slam count the masters like the total career records, the head-to-head, the fact that like Djokovic has beaten Rafa twice on clay, he's beaten Roger three times on grass at Wimbledon. Like he, his case is is strong, and I wouldn't be shocked if he finishes with a clear lead. You know, ends up like around twenty-five. I don't know if Rafa gets another one. You know, suddenly a, a week ago, I would have said that he's going to win the French Open like seven more times because it just didn't seem possible for him to lose. Yeah. And now it's it's um, possible that we don't see him ever winning another slam. I think um, such, I mean, maybe not physically yet, but like emotionally the fall from, it just seems like, how do you come back from that? Like, it just feels like the king has been slain, you know? Yeah, but it, and yet that's the thing. We we assume that these players eventually, you know, they suffer that defeat. I mean, you can say the same thing about Roger on grass a couple of years ago, that they're going to they're gonna take that defeat and it's just going to end them emotionally, that the 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 mental stuff, the, the baggage is going to be too much to overcome. But Rafa doesn't strike me as a person who gives any shits about what happened previously. He's just going to go out there next year and do the exact same thing. I think with Rafa, the thing is, I mean, his invincibility armor has been pierced. Yeah. And I, and I also think he's not going to win on grass again. And he's unlikely to win on a hard court again, I think, a major on a hard court. Because I just think that the, I think the young guys are too good. I, I think Medvedev is going to get his time at the, uh, the hard court slams. Tsitsipas is right there. What was this, the third or fourth slam in a row Tsitsipas made the semis or better I mean he's just consistently going deep and you know he's taking his knocks but I gotta yeah I just have to think he's gonna break through really soon Mm. um 
maybe team will be in the mix again. I don't know what's up with him. You know, he's obviously had a little bit of like a mental walkabout, but um, he's certainly he's certainly there. And then, you you know, I kind of wondered today, like, oh, well, Pass like missed this opportunity. He was right there. Two sets to love in the final against one of the legends. And he was, you know, he had his chance. And then but what if what if the younger group is the one that, you know, that troubles him more? Right. Like he's right there at the end of the big three. And then what if Sinner and Musetti and I don't know who else come on up and threaten him you know what of the what of the next generation is actually the better one mm. but that's why i just i just really i did want him to win i i did i didn't feel like it would be just novak needed to win it it's right that novak won but man i i do feel for steph and maybe part of that's also because steph is just, just steph just feels everything so much harder than he <laughs> he needs to Steph. Uh, let's talk about Steph for a moment. Um, <laughs> All right. He, um, you know, like he does give these emotional interviews, his personal story, his his struggle as an artist, you know, on the court. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, coming from a small village, you know, outside of Athens. Right. Uh, you know, um, very feeling passionately like the the weight of uh, Greek pride. Um, yeah. And, you know, like he, 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 yeah, he wears his heart on his sleeve. It's, it's almost painful at times, like, to be honest, like, um, the, like, sometimes I'm just like, oh, come on, mate, you know, <laughs> like, it, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not the, you know, like, you're not the, um, well, I suppose he is the protagonist, you know, in this story, but he, you're not like, the world doesn't revolve around you and like it is at the end of the day it's a tennis match but i still like like his attitude it's still it's way more likable than and, and he's, he's good for the game he's, he's an interesting character um I, i'm warming to him yeah good. um but i think it would start contrast that attitude that he has which is quite endearing actually when the more i think about it um hmm. then zverev who he beat in the semi-final totally it was like I saw fucking Zverev, like, I mean, I, you know, like the abuse allegations and stuff aside, which are horrible, like, which is, you know, yes, um, you know, reason enough to like dismiss him entirely. But I suppose we don't know for sure. That aside, his attitude in the post-match press conference was like, well, I didn't win, did I? You know, I, um, how can I be happy? Yeah. Like, how can I take anything good from that? Like, I want even, even if I win the semifinal. What, what's that it's nothing it's just making a final i have to you know like he he seems to care like in a really cold way mm. about the achievement of winning and beating everybody and like that he just that he has to be the best or there's no joy to take in any of that um totally uh whereas you know Sitspas, he lost that final in madrid to rafa he's like Barcelona. Oh, Barcelona. Thank you. He's sad, but, you know, he's kind of smiling as well. And um, Pavlyuchenkova losing the final um, as well. Be like, you know, my friends came. Maybe this is the only time they'll ever see me in a final. But, hey, you know, there's other things in life that are more important, she said, like, you know, like like friends and stuff. And that kind of attitude, I think everyone relates to that. And um, everyone's... Yeah. 
enjoys that and, and it helps you in your own life to kind of see see people in these moments having a good attitude. Yeah, that was a really sweet speech from Pavlyuchenkova where, um, yeah, which I found super endearing, just the fact that she had the perspective. She knows that she mm. might never get to that position and she's not she's not crushed she's not crestfallen she she knows that she has what she really needs in her life and she can appreciate it in that moment and that was it was just so graceful and graceful yes and lovely i think you had a your point about stephanos and it was really insightful he he i think he just he's so in his head that he does kind of see himself as the center of his universe but his his emotional expressiveness you know it's almost like He's like the live journal generation come back or like, you know, like dashboard confessional emo or something like he's <laughs> he's so he's so hard on the sleeve in this way that, that I find really appealing. I mean, I dashboard confessional is a terrible band, but I like other generations of, of emo music. You know, I like that hard on the sleeve, letting everybody know how you feel, being really earnest and and open and, you know, and showing your love and showing what what matters to you. And um, I think it does turn some people off who just like a little bit more composed, stuffy, like, let's just play the sport and be like gladiators about it. And Zverev is just, he's miserable. He, he, he sucks the joy out of matches. Like he, mm. he only seems to be having a good time when he's winning. And even then, not really so much. Yes. Something's really rotten there, you know, like he like that. I loved watching Pass. I watched almost every match of this tournament. I was really hanging on his matches and really cared about the outcomes. And that's that one against Zverev was like just it just wasn't fun. Like um, it's in his play style. It's in his demeanor. He just um, even even my favorite players like I don't enjoy watching them against Zverev. I just I just wish he would go away, really. Yeah, and I think like um, that's so right. He does suck the joy um, out of matches, and that's where um, I don't appreciate him at all. Because even the loser in a match has a role to play, especially in a big match. Uh, and you saw that um, Nastia in the final. She's on the stage there with Navratilova and Krajikova and. She's playing her part, like the perspective that she has to be able to enjoy the moment, even though she lost, it really, it helps everyone else there to like even lift it. It lifts Krajikova even higher, you know, it makes the whole thing so much more enjoyable for the winner. And that's, that's generous, you know, that's like a really generous thing to do. Yeah. You don't get that with Zverev at all. You just get like, no. I should have won, like, it's injustice that I didn't win. I'm better than this. You know, it's like a, like a, I don't know, a teenager that, oh, not, a, not even a teenager, sorry, a, a toddler that um, had his toy taken away from him or something. I think his perspective isn't just that he thinks it's unjust that he didn't win. He thinks that he's a failure. Like, he can't, he just is just like, some, somehow his self-worth is tied up in that. You know, and mm. I, I think that's where you run into that. That's a little darker. Yeah, I think, and I think there's a darkness there. I mean, it's, uh, I, you know, I can't speculate about what his home life is like or anything or his upbringing. But, you know, I mean, he is somebody who faced a lot of really big expectations from the very outset. People were saying, this guy's going to be number one. He's going to win all these slams. You know, he had all the tools. 
And he's he is he's right there. I, I loathe to say it, but I think he probably will win some slams eventually. There is a lot more pressure now about the majors, but then the payoff is much greater as well. But uh, the players, you know, they dream about falling on the clay here and holding the trophy or jumping. Everybody falls now. Have you noticed? We used to jump up. Now they fall down. I think Bjorn Borg started. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We had this whole we had that whole side conversation over text message uh, with Alex about what constitutes sporting behavior because of Musetti's strange retirement against Novak from, yeah. you know, four love down in the fifth set. And I, I look at Musetti and I also I also get that like hard on sleeve emo teenager vibe, but even more adolescent. Like I actually I don't know if you've seen him in an interview there. He did an interview on the tennis channel that was hilarious in just how childlike he is like he's he's so <laughs> immature <laughs> that and and endearing in a way because he's you know he's handsome he's got this floppy hair he kept like messing with his hair while he's being interviewed and um <laughs> like he's just he's so far from being an adult you know um he's 17 right uh is he 17 no he's 19 isn't he Lorenzo Musetti was born on March 3rd, 2001, which makes him 19 years of age. So he's a baby. He's like, and, and getting as deep as he did, you know, getting to the fourth round and taking two sets off of Novak Djokovic. This is his first slam. I mean, that was incredible. Like, that's, that's an amazing performance for somebody his age in this era. Um, and yeah, who's to say he couldn't have gone deeper if he had had a, a slightly different draw? Yeah, I, I had a notion that he was 17. Um, maybe that's his maturity mm. level, but um, yeah. even 19, even 19, like so young, you really don't know how to behave or you, you're really like just emerging as a person out in the adult world. Yeah. I think it's such a massive, just to go back to the ethics kind of question of quitting a match. I think it would be such an emotionally charged situation that you wouldn't have the tools necessarily to deal with being two sets to love up against the world number one and then getting dismantled progressively until like you just got nothing left and you're losing four love in the fifth. It's like that attitude of like being the griddle loser that we saw from Nastia in the final. Yeah. It's not like I don't think he he did anything bad there, actually. Yeah. He's just a kid that got beaten really, really badly and had nothing left. Yeah, and he didn't know, like, the, like, unspoken old rules of, you know, how to play tennis in a in a gentlemanly manner. You know, like, like I think that's one of the reasons I chafe at the criticism of Musetti in that moment because I just think... There's something deep in the criticism, like, you know, kind of this old, like, classist, club-oriented, you know, everything must be prim and proper, it must be done the right way kind of attitude that I think is present when people criticize something like that. Like, people are offended on behalf of some abstract idea of what the sport should be, how sports should be played. But then again, I do think, like, some behavior is sporting and some isn't. And that's something, but that's something I, I had, I had to learn how to appreciate that. That's something that I don't think I really fully understood probably until I was in my thirties, 
you know, like the concept of grace and how that might be applied in your individual life, like how to, how to lose gracefully, how to be humble, how to give credit to your opponent when they do something good or when they defeat you, how to know like, Hey, I saw that the ball went in, even though it was called out and I'm going to give my opponent the point because it's the sporting thing to do. Like Mm. it takes time for people to learn it and to expect that a 19 year old would just get that automatically is probably a little bit unfair. And I, I don't think very many people are like damning him saying that like, Oh, he's just, you know, He's the worst man around because he quit that match <laughs> like two games early. Nah. Um, no, I didn't think they are too. Incoming voicemail from Mr. Alex Dawson. I just don't really agree that it's like an old stuffy, old, <clears throat> you know, gentlemanly thinking of times gone past. That, that people are, that's why people are upset. I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's a, that people were, that bristled at it because they're thinking in, in some kind of older traditional sort of way of thinking or anything like that. I made a couple of analogies in our group chat. One of them was like a basketball one and you sort of dismiss that or, or pick that apart by saying that, you know, if a team realises that they can't win, they do take all their starters off and then just run down the clock. But that's kind of exactly what I'm saying that Mercedes should have done. Do the tennis version of running out the clock. You know, he only had eight more points to play. It would have been about three more minutes. Just like the basketball team, they still run out the clock. It's not like they just go, oh, we're not going to win. Let's just get on the bus and go home. You know, they take their starters off and conserve whatever they need to conserve. But they still just finish the match, which is what Mercedes didn't do. So, you know, I, I don't think he's it's the worst thing in the world. I don't think he's a bad, terrible person for doing it or anything like that. But I don't think it's a stuffy old tennis mentality, which is why people are upset. I just think you come to see a match, you expect it to finish, unless there's injury or whatever, you know, like there's reasons why. Retirements happen, it's fine. It's just about finishing. You're so close and he, he pulled out because he couldn't win. He didn't pull out because he couldn't finish. He pulled out because he couldn't win anymore. He couldn't win any more points. He wasn't going to win the match. I'm done. I'm going home. I just think we got to give passes to some of these people, even going back to the, the whole Osaka narrative that's, that started the whole tournament off. You can look at the whole thing and realize, like, she's a person struggling with depression and anxiety, and she's very young and very rich, and all of this is new. And she's a work in progress and she's trying to figure it out and she may make some mistakes along the way. Yeah. That requires a more generous attitude to see it that way because it's it's easy to get frustrated with how that story overshadowed the actual tennis and how it could be seen as selfish and all this stuff. But, you know, these are these are very young people we're, we're dealing with most of the time. Yeah. Um, and I and I think even if you do get a bit a bit older and a bit of perspective, you actually come up against these moral challenges where you have competing attitudes and you actually have to make a choice. Like you have to decide what does grace mean for you? What is being humble? And what does that mean? Or like, um, how, how do you like, how do you go about things? Cause you talk about saying, admitting the ball was in, um, when mm. it got called out and you're the one that can decide for your opponent, whether they win the point or not. Well, that kind of attitude is just really at odds with so much that we learn in mm-hmm. society about like um, 
winning at all costs, you know, you've got to be ruthless. You've right. got to be competitive. You, you've got to, yep. you, you know, like you can't give your opponent a break because then they'll break you, you know. like um, That's right. So it does actually take a lot of strength of character. And like the Osaka example, like she's already shown that. Like maybe she didn't like give the, the French Tennis Federation like sufficient notice that she wasn't going to do press or like there's some questions there but you know her attitude around um, speaking up for victims black victims of police violence and black lives matter campaign and stuff like that shows real leadership real moral courage and you know and it also is an opportunity as well now to to reset and think about the mental health of people in general and and the whole machine the advertising machine and the press machine and the needs of a tournament to make money at the expense of whatever gets in the way yeah i think there's a sad irony in that whole story uh, that if, if you start to look at osaka's endorsement deals you know and you look at her instagram and you look at how much of herself she's decided to she's chosen to you know put forward as a spokesperson for all of these companies all these brands for money and you know for whatever she might think about the the tennis world and the the needs of like you know the tournaments and the press I, I suspect that a lot of the pressure she feels has something to do with all these other obligations she's taking on herself, which are, which is a choice, you know? And I think, you know, there needs to be some space for self-reflection there. I think there were a lot of really bad hot takes about how unjust the sports media is and how unkind and and how like there's some kind of systemic problem that needs to be addressed and how this reflects on like the, the plight of you know of the working woman and and it's you know I, I just don't buy it in this case and i think that's also that's not osaka's fault necessarily that's kind of the way the world reacts to something like what happened with osaka but um yeah i mean she's a person who i think is learning and struggling and trying to find her way and i think she made some poor decisions in terms of like how she chose to express herself I just feel like it was in a way that kind of put herself in front of other people who are mostly participating in the entirety of the sport. They, they've they agreed that that's, that's kind of part of the deal, whether they like it or not. And, and I, I can see why, other, why many people were frustrated with her. Mm. Yeah, um, I kind of also reject like, the notion that Osaka is just uh, a worker um, that you know doesn't control her labor and you know is subject to these forces that are exploiting her um yeah which is a way you look at the treatment like and it's very relevant though like this example can you know help us to turn our minds to the plight of most of workers in society who who actually that is the case for them they they are exploited they do have to just turn up and they do are subject to the stresses Mm -hmm. and the mental illness that comes along with that but asaka is not really one of those people she actively you know seeks out um representation and sponsorship she's got the sponsorship of all nippon airlines and um nissan noodles and they pay her good money really great money to be like she's the highest paid female athlete of all time and she's benefiting a lot from these relations and choosing to participate in them um yep it still doesn't it doesn't excuse it still doesn't excuse a lot of a lot of stuff but you use her as an example of the way workers more generally are exploited um she's got a lot of um she's got a lot of things that most people most workers 
don't have a lot of insulation um, yeah. from all the everyday exploitation most people feel. Yeah, and she wasn't really standing up on behalf of some greater cause, even though she adopted some of that language and posture. Like, she was trying to create space for herself. I, I believe that's fundamentally what she was trying to do. She was just trying to protect herself and not engage in something that was causing her a lot of anxiety. But yeah, she's she's a person in a position of a lot of power and influence. And, um, and I think if we're talking about the struggles of working people, that requires like a collaborative approach, I think, you know? Like it requires getting in a room with other other professional tennis players and discussing that sort of thing. Like, like is is this is the media arrangement right? Is is there something here that like like do you guys also like feel that this is making you know making it harder for you to live your life? And is is it really you know is it causing a lot of mental duress for other people? Because you know just because one person is experiencing that sort of thing doesn't mean that that's that's a systemic problem. And I, and I don't know that she talked to any, anybody else about what she was going through. And mm. that's right. I think that's the right way to do it. Like to, um, to begin a conversation. It's also right. Like when you're suffering from mental health problems that you, you know, like you do things that you need to do. Like she needs to opt out of media engagements. Like it's the right decision. Um, you know, I, I still think that's, that's okay. But if we drill down more into what are other players thinking, and also, you know, the real workers here are some of the, you know, the just reporters that are going to, that are asking the questions in the press conferences, they need to be involved too. Like they're, they're just, they are also doing their jobs and they're also like on a, on a much lesser wage than most of the players and officials. Indeed. Yeah. You know, you start drilling down more and it's like the whole the whole system of how how do we collaborate together and who's making the money you know who's benefiting from whom that is a longer more nuanced conversation yeah completely agree and uh and it requires a bit of perspective and maturity to really confront those questions because the system is complex and i think it's it is worth asking like who's actually benefiting here like who are these companies we're representing every time we step on court? Um, where does the money go? Like, are we getting our fair share? Is everybody involved with this process getting their fair share? Like, what is the role of media? Are they, like, actually propping up the sport? Are they helping us get our stories out and helping us make tennis more popular? Or is there something in the arrangement that, that like, leads to these antagonistic relationships that, that actually kind of drag it down? Um, somebody, I, I think this was probably another tennis podcast thing but uh, i think Catherine was talking about um the f1 documentary series that was on netflix and i I didn't realize they did more than one season of it and i'm sort of eager to to check it out again but they were talking about how amazing it is for promoting that sport you know by telling like really telling the 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 individual stories, the stories of the teams, like the behind the scenes stuff, the relationships, the the drama that, you know, that like that's the sort of stuff that can bring casual fans in. You know, it's it's not always just between the lines. Certainly for me, like I find that my excitement, my interest just goes so much deeper when I care about the players, when I know their when I think I know their, their emotional beings, when I get a sense for who their teams are and 
you know, and what they're all about and what, what drives them and motivates them. That's, that's why we talk about it. That's, that's why the sport's so compelling. Yeah. And I, I think like if everybody just, if we just, if the sport opted out of like post-match interviews, that would, wouldn't really be better. But I do wonder if maybe there are better ways, more, more creative ways to, to highlight the players and their teams and the, and all that other stuff, you know, that would, that would help grow the sport. Because um, as much as that Djokovic-Nadal match probably did bring some new fans to the table, I just want more people to be excited. I would love to have more than 30 people listening to each episode of The Tennis Tragic. Because <laughs> the appetite for tennis podcasts is so insatiable. Yeah, it's the that, even obscure tennis podcasts like our one that is just you know, attracting fans by the dozen. Right, without us even really trying just because people are hungry to seek out information about the fantastic, dramatic, um, emotional sport of tennis. <laughs>